Good morning. That's not bad for a group of people who may have been up late last night watching the Olympics. I confess, I peaked a time or two myself. We're now in lesson six in our study of the book of Hebrews, and we're looking in particular at chapter two, verses 10 through 18. Now, I need to, to put a little footnote here. Next week, I'm going to take a little time to answer some questions. In, uh, in my seminary days, one of the professors used to have what he called the Inquisition. And, uh, he assigned, uh, somebody to, to challenge or to question him on the teaching that he had been doing in the last several weeks. And, uh, and so they would, they would have to come forth with their questions, whether they wanted to or not. And uh, I'm not particularly looking for a debate, but it does seem to me that we've come far enough, we've come to the end of the first section, that there may be questions that you have. And so I would encourage you, either hand them to me, email them to me this week, uh, or send them to the office and they'll get them to me, and I'll take a few minutes next week to answer some of the questions which you may have. Now, when I come to this uh, chapter and, and to this particular text, I, I have to admit I wish it was Christmas. Uh, this is really a great Christmas text, is it not? It's talking about the benefits of the incarnation. So often at Christmas time, we go to the, the early chapters in the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke, and we look at the account of the birth of our Lord. But in those accounts, you really don't see a great exposition of what that means for us. You know that it's a very significant event that God has taken on human flesh and dwelt amongst men. But the exposition of what that means does not really come in those Gospels. You come to a place like the book of Philippians chapter 2, and the incarnation is used as an example of humility and servanthood, and that's good. But again, it does not really fully expound the implications of the incarnation. And I would suggest to you that this text, and probably uh, spread broader this entire book of Hebrews, is the fullest exposition uh, on the implications of the incarnation of our Lord that we may have. So it is a very important text indeed. Well, let's take a look at uh, the propriety of the incarnation, which we see in verse 10. We read, For it was fitting for him, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, I would, I really should elaborate or at least emphasize sufferings, plural. I read some of the commentators who talk about suffering and they immediately place and equate that with death. Seems to me that in the book of Hebrews, there's more suffering than that and that that is included in his, in, in his reference to the sufferings of our Lord as a result of his incarnation. The, ver the, the text begins with the word for, so that takes us back to where we began. You remember at the end of, of chapter 1, 
you have a quotation in verse 13 of Psalm 110, verse 1, that God has exalted him and put him at his right hand until he places his enemies under his feet. In other words, the son who is superior to all the angels has been appointed to rule. And then verse 14 says that the angels have been appointed to serve those who are saints. They are ministering spirits. So he is Lord and reigns. Angels are servants, and it says they minister to the saints. Then there's the uh, the exhortation of two one through four, where it talks, where he says, "If indeed the Son is as great as this, then we ought to pay more careful attention to what it is that he has said to his word, lest we drift away. For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation?" Then in verse five, he talks about. The, the fact that the Father has chosen not to subject the, this, the world to come to angels, but that he has given that to men. And then we know that men have failed and sinned. They have lost their dominion over the earth. Things are not the way they seem, as the writer says. We don't see everything under the control of men at this time. But he says, we do see the Son, and He is high and lifted up because of His incarnation, because of His death. He has now been glorified and exalted to the right hand. He is the one who has died for the benefit of men. And so the four picks up on that and carries on to talk about the incarnation, and in particular, the benefits and the blessings, or I call it the implications because it has an I, but the benefits and the blessings of the incarnation in particular for the believer. It is fitting, he says, that he would be perfected through sufferings. Fitting, I think, I'm, I'm looking at in the sense of appropriate and necessary. And it's fitting for him to whom and from whom are all things. That's the Father. It's fitting for the Father to have done this for the Son in the Son, to have incarnated him and to perfect him through sufferings for the work that he is to do. So bringing many sons to glory, I take it, refers to their salvation and it it refers to their restoration, that is, that lost glory that we were looking at from Psalm 8. He restores men to that glory through the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word to perfect, I think that's probably, for for most of us, that's the, the issue that we would raise is, how do you perfect something that's perfect? How do you take something that is absolutely just right and make it better? That's not really the sense in which the word perfect is used here. And I I simply cited for you on the screen Freeberg's lexicon, and he makes a point of saying this verse, that here he believes perfect means to completely prepare. I was thinking about the Olympics in that regard. When you look at the Olympics, there are certain things that you have to do in order to be a contestant, right? You have to meet certain qualifications. You have to go through uh, a lot of training, uh, rigors, and whatever to be there, to be in that contest. 
But those are necessary things which prepare the way, which equip, if you would, and completely prepare you for what lies ahead. Now, our Lord is called the pioneer, or depending on your translation, there probably are a number of things, the captain of their salvation, the author of salvation. And I came across this article in, in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. By the way, thanks, Hampton. I got it from you, I think, indirectly. But he says this, Given its full range of meaning... The word designates an individual who opened the way into a new area for others to follow, founded the city in which they dwelt, gave his name to the community, fought its battles and secured the victory, and then remained as leader, ruler, hero of his people. The best illustration I can think of that is David. Uh, When you look back in, in the Old Testament, the city of Jebus, David has to take that city and capture it, and then he will build that city and its fortifications, and, and, and later the temple will be built, and so on. But David, the one who gives victory over the enemies, then becomes the king, then establishes the city, and then rules over it. So that is involved. In, I think all of those things are involved and that's why it's it's difficult sometimes to pick exactly one word that is going to uh, that's going to convey the whole sense. Then how is it? The question is how is it that it is fitting for our Lord Jesus to be perfected through sufferings? How could we say it's fitting? It's appropriate for Him to be perfected. And I would say to you, you got to wait because the answer is not in verse ten. It's in verses 11 and following, 11 through 18. It's these verses which explain to us why the incarnation of our Lord that led to his sufferings and to his death, why that is appropriate and fitting. He will answer his own question. So let's talk about the implications of the incarnation. Now it seems to me that in verses 11 through 18, you see what it is the incarnation produces. What are the benefits that derive from the incarnation of our Lord Jesus that would make his suffering appropriate and fitting given all that's involved in that? Well, let's look first at all, first of all at verses 11 through 13. We gain a family. Or as we were talking about in the worship time, a new race. But that new race is really a family of people as I understand it. Verse 11, for indeed he who makes holy, that would be our Lord Jesus, and those being made holy, that would be saints, all have the same origin. And so he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Again, he says, I will be confident in him, or some would say, I trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God has given me. Three quotations here from the Old Testament. Uh, The first quotation coming from Psalm 22, verse 22, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. The second coming from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, I will put my trust in him. And the the third one, the next very next verse in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, Here I am with the children God has given me. 
So let's look at how it is that we can see this family developing. The author says that they come from one origin, one source. It just really says, literally, out of one. And when you look at that, for example, in the Old Testament, when it talks about the lampstand, the golden lampstand, it says it is to be made out of one, that it is, it is to be one piece made out of the same, uh, as it were, chunk of gold, one piece fashioned down into that, not multiple pieces. So I think you could say we have one father in, the, in, in a certain sense, and obviously our Lord's relationship to the father is different from us, but, but it's through the Father that the incarnation took place, and it is through the Father that we are begotten. And so we have one Father, and you might say we have one family. We are one unit or one new people, as we talked about this morning in, in worship. But look now at how this, this family is gained as, as we uh, look at Psalm 22, verse 22. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. I've been listening to Dr. Johnson uh, do his series in Hebrews, and it's pretty lengthy, but you you can get that online. You can download the MP3s, and it's really good. Uh, But one of the uh, things that he says is, he says, I've been studying the use of the Old Testament and the New for many years. I took a course from him on that subject, as I mentioned to you earlier. But this has been a a long-term investigation for him. And he said, the one thing I'm convinced of is this. Those Old Testament saints that used, these New Testament saints that quoted the Old Testament scriptures, they really knew their Bible. And he said, what I've discovered is that when I look at these texts, I say to myself, how in the world did he ever get that from there? And he says, After I look hard and I search and I study and it finally comes to me, I say, of course, of course, he really understood. And and one of the things that you will discover is that when these New Testament writers are citing an Old Testament text, it is not just the the precise words that they have recorded and, and, and captured and cite, it is the context from which they come, and they draw upon that context. So let's take a quick look, if we can, at this text in Psalm 22. Now, we all know that psalm well, right? My God begins, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Our Lord calls out those words from the cross, so he identifies himself with David here. And we know from that psalm that David is describing his own dilemma, and he is crying out for help. But he is describing it in such uh, terms that we have to see something bigger than just his own turmoil going on. And, and in fact, we see that the, this is just a very, very beautiful, if you can say that, description of our Lord's suffering on the cross. Very, very precise citations and prophecies about what our Lord's death will be like. So he's, he cries out to God, and in verses 1 through 11, in effect, he says, Why aren't you listening? Can, or today's terms, can you hear me yet? You know, he's saying. His cell phone doesn't seem to be making connections, and he's, he's crying out to God and saying, Why is it you're not answering my plea for help? And then in, in verses 12 through 18, that's where you see this description that just fits so closely with our Lord's crucifixion that we have to see that as virtual prophecy 
coming from the from the lips and the pen of, of David. And then in verses 19 through 21, the first part, he cries out for help. Lord, help me. And it's right there at the last part of verse 21 that all of a sudden it's as though he has assurance that the Lord has heard him and now the whole psalm turns. And it goes from a crying out for help out of desperation to a praise that is offered to God in joyful and grateful gratitude for what he has done or what he is about to do. And so that's where our text picks up. The writer says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Remember in the Old Testament how often the psalmist will say, I was in this dilemma and I called out to you and what I said is, Lord, if you save me, if you deliver me, if you help me, I'm going to go and I'm going to tell your people. I'm going to declare your praises before your people. And and that is what the psalmist is doing. He is saying, I'm going to declare your praise. But the way in which the writer of Hebrews uses this He understands this to be a messianic text. And so he understands that just as David is crying out, and these are the words of David, there is a sense in which these are the words of our Lord. And because our Lord has heard his plea and has delivered him from death, then he is going to declare the praises of the Father before his people, and he's going to call them his brothers. So there is this element of of praise and declaration, but there is the element of community where the whole community of believers together rejoices in what God has done. And so this this element of brotherhood is introduced uh, by uh, David in his psalm and then used uh, by the author of Hebrews. I say there... Jesus is saved from his sufferings, and so he praises God with his family. We are saved by his sufferings, and so we rejoice as his family. Then there is the the quotation, I will put my trust in him, and followed by, here I, I am with the children God has given me. Now these or two verses that are followed one right after the other, but the author has chosen to separate them for a moment uh, so that we will look at each one. This comes from Isaiah chapter 8. Now, it doesn't take a Rhodes scholar to figure out. Think about Isaiah, what you know about it. Isaiah chapter 7, Behold, a virgin shall conceive, right? Great messianic prophecy. Isaiah chapter 9, the one is going to come about who the government will be upon his shoulders and so on. So in between these two great chapters, 7 and 9, prophetically looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, we have chapter 8 and we must see, as the author does, that it is messianic as well. But look at the, at, at the, at the setting in Isaiah chapter 8. Remember, you've got Rezin and Pekah, Rezin of Syria, Pekah of of Israel. They are threatening to come down and and to form a coalition to come down and to attack Judah because they will not unite, Judah will not unite with them. And so there is this great fear in Judah, and Ahaz is the king. He is very fearful that 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 this um, this uh, war that's going to be conducted against them is going to defeat them. 
And so Isaiah the prophet comes to the king and he says, relax, it isn't going to happen. And then he says, your son, you're going to have a son, his name will be Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Boy, that's a tough one. I could just see mama yelling out in the streets for that boy. Take her all morning to get it out. But this boy is, is now prophetic, will be prophetic in the sense that before this boy reaches the age, we might say, of accountability, these two kings, which Ahaz fears, are going to just be non-existent. This, this whole thing's going to vaporize. So that's the, that's the context in which we see this. And, and as that chapter develops, it, it's evident that the nation of Judah as a whole is going to reject what God has said, they are going to reject God and therefore they will eventually be carried off into captivity as well, even though it won't be by the Assyrians that are the present threat. And the, and the writer is saying, Isaiah is saying, that there's going to be a remnant of people. So when Isaiah speaks, he is speaking as one who not only has these children who are signs, but he has this small little following of disciples, this righteous remnant, and he says... I will trust in him. In other words, I'll trust in God. I'm going to believe what God says about my deliverance. But the way in which the wording uh, comes in the text that our writer is quoting, he is saying, I will trust in Yahweh. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, our Lord Jesus Christ identified with men so completely that he cast himself in dependence upon the Father just as Isaiah did. And that with him is this company of believers, this company of brothers and sisters who are trusting in Yahweh as well. And so he sees in this statement and this condition with Isaiah, he sees the bigger picture through the eyes of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says... Our Lord Jesus himself in his humanity cast himself upon the Father. Now think about that. Do we not really believe that? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Here is our Lord going to the cross, committing himself to the Father, trusting that he will deliver him and fulfill his purposes through him. That is what the author of Hebrews is saying. And his emphasis is that little group, that little remnant is family. These are the people who associate with him. So there is with Messiah this group of people that he calls his brothers and sisters. And that's where the second part of that quote, here I am with the children God has given me. So in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has come, he has identified himself with mankind. He has identified with humanity. And in his work, those who have trusted in him are now part of this family, part of this new race, and there is this intimacy that comes within this family, and they together proclaim the praises of God. Okay, so we become family through the incarnation. We, he enters into the human race, he becomes one with us, and we become this new family together in the Messiah, those who believe in him. Now, secondly, you see in verses 14 and 15, the defeat of Satan. Now, 
You have to think about this in the light of what does the incarnation have to do with Satan's defeat? Isn't that the question? The the whole section is about the incarnation and its benefits. Now we are focusing specifically on Satan's defeat and the end of the fear of death. Well, if you look in Genesis chapter 3, you remember that God says uh, to, to, to to the woman, your seed is going to crush, or I should say, he says to Satan, her seed is going to crush your head. So for Satan to be defeated, there has to be a man to do it. You follow the logic of that? There must be a man to defeat Satan, to stomp on his head. Yes, his heel will be bruised as, as a reference to his sufferings, but the head of Satan will be crushed by a man. The incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, not only facilitated this family, but it facilitated the defeat of Satan. And with Satan's defeat comes the, the, the end of the fear of death. That was his grip. The fear of death is Satan's grip on men. And that grip has now been released because through the incarnation, the son has come and destroyed the devil in his power. Okay, so let's look now at another implication in verse 16. We become Abraham's descendants. Do you remember that when God promised, when he made a covenant with Abraham, he promised to be a blessing to Abraham and to his seed, his descendants. And through his descendants he would become a blessing to all of the world. Now, Abraham was a man, right? So we would say, in order for the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled, a man is going to have to do it. Now, the way I read the Old Testament, I can see all these people looking at each one of these men and saying, I wonder if this is the one. I wonder if this is the one that's going to do that. And you look at David, and man, it looks like things are on a roll when David's in his early days, and then all of a sudden you say, oops, not David. Then oops, not Solomon. And then just one continual oops right down through the line until you're saying, you know what? I don't think this is going to work. And it won't until the perfect man comes. So the Lord Jesus Christ, this is Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. He says, when God promised the blessing through the seed, he did not say seeds as though it would be all of these descendants. He said seed. One descendant is going to be the means by which that blessing comes upon the sons of Abraham. And that one person is the Lord Jesus Christ. He took on humanity to become the seed of Abraham through whom the blessings come. And then as Romans 4 and Galatians make clear to us, all of those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ become the seed of Abraham. So we become Abraham's seed because of the seed of Abraham that came about because of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he also says, his concern is for the seed of Abraham, not for angels. I want to come back to that. But what he's saying is, when we enter into the family of Abraham, 
When we become a part of the seed of Abraham, that is the person with whom God has covenant relationship, and therefore we enter into a place of privilege and blessing. God has special interest in the seed of Abraham. And so we become the objects of his great interest. And and what's interesting, and we'll play this out a little bit later, but not angels. I mean, that's it's kind of interesting. If there were angels standing around, God saying, I'm interested in him, not you guys, him or them. Uh, but man has, in that sense, priority over the angels in the concern and the care, the special care which God has taken for Abraham's seed. Verses 17 and 18, we gain a merciful and faithful high priest. He says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect. I think this is the answer to it is fitting. Why is it fitting for our Lord Jesus Christ to take on human flesh, knowing that of all the sufferings that that's going to entail, And he says here, he had to. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things relating to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. So you've got two major elements here. Propitiation. That is the satisfaction for sins that God requires, the saving work of our Lord Jesus. As the writer is going to say later on, every priest must make an offering. (laughs) And then he'll go on to say, because of these priests of Aaron and they're all sinners, the first thing they got to do is offer for themselves because they're sinners. And then they can make an offering on behalf of the people, but... The Lord Jesus, because he has taken on human flesh and he is without sin, he can make an offering of himself. He is the great high priest. He offers himself as the sinless lamb of God in the sinner's place, and therefore he makes propitiation. He satisfies God's righteous anger toward the sinner, bringing about salvation. And then he has a further priestly ministry of assisting helping those who are in need. Notice he says he is able to help those uh, for he himself when he uh, uh, suffered, when he was tempted, he is able to help those who were tempted. Go back to the bridge, I-35 bridge that went back into Minneapolis. If you were now to test that bridge, you know, at some point, granted there was loads of gravel or sand or something on the bridge, and it was finally a point where it just couldn't handle it anymore. That was the breaking point. But if you talk about our Lord Jesus Christ, his infinite holiness and perfection was such that you could keep loading it on forever. It would never fail. So that for us, you know, with all of our weaknesses and predispositions and whatever, we're all going to fail. The only question is, what's it going to take? What's the load going to be before we break? Our Lord Jesus Christ can take an infinite load, and in fact, in his earthly life, he did, so that our Lord endured infinitely more temptation and suffering than any of us will ever experience. 
So he can identify. He knows what our temptations and trials are. He has learned far more than that. And he is able because he has experienced them. And because he is powerful, he now becomes the one who can offer us help. It is interesting. He talks about a faithful, a merciful and faithful high priest. And then what the author does is he'll follow this in the opposite order. So the first thing he'll talk about is the faithfulness of the high priest. Remember when he talks about Moses, who is faithful in his house and whatever? So he talks about faithful first. Then he talks about merciful after that. But he's going to pick out. These are transitional verses that are preparing us for the high priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, vastly superior to that of Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood. And now he says he is going to be the one who ministers to us in our time of need. Now, let's talk about the uh, the implications of this. I have to tell you, I threw my conclusion away this morning. And, and it's a little hard when you've got PowerPoint because you've got to do more than just toss it in the garbage can. But, but I basically had gone through each of these points and I had thought about ways in which they could apply. And that's not a bad exercise. That's not a bad exercise. But I would say this. If we are following the author and letting him take the lead, he hasn't gotten to exhortation yet. (laughs) And so in a sense, I can't cheat and give you that exhortation. He has only taken us this far. And the other thing is, I think we often as Christians, we almost brace ourselves. It's like going to the doctor when you know you're going to get a shot, and we sort of brace ourselves, and so we say, okay, okay, what's it going to cost me? What do I have to do because of this? And so we're all set up for this for this time when something, we're going to have to do something about this. And trust me, we need to apply the truth. But it seems to me that what this text is saying to us is, don't think about what you're supposed to do right now. Think about who he is and who you are because of him. Think about who you are. And, and let's just play this out for a second. You had chapter 1, he's higher than the angels. Then chapter 2, he's lower than the angels. And the question that has to be in our minds, at least it was in mine, is, so, okay, here I am at the end of chapter 2. How is this chapter teaching us that our Lord Jesus is higher than the angels? We know for a time he became lower than the angels, but he now is exalted at the right hand of the Father and so on. So how is it? that the Son is proven to be higher than the angels. What is the author doing here? Well, let me just remind you of the benefits of what he's talked about. When you look in chapter 1, he says uh, with relationship to the angels. Angels come up three times. In chapter 1, verse 14, he says that the angels are those who are ministering spirits and that those ministering spirits have been appointed or commissioned to serve, to minister to the saints, right? Then in chapter five, uh, 2, verse 5, he says, it is not the angels to whom God has given the control of the world to come, it is to men. And he demonstrates how the, the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ has elevated men to be kings of the earth, to that place that they were appointed in Genesis chapter 1, but they lost in Genesis chapter 3. Think 
about that. Yeah, you got all this wonderful glory in chapter one, and two chapters later, it's all over. But the shouting or the crying. And, and now that's all been restored, he says. But in verse 16, he says, it isn't about the angels that God concerns himself. It is about men. So here's what I would like to suggest. I would like to suggest to you that what our Lord does is this. In chapter 1, we see the greatness of the Son, superior, vastly superior to the angels. Then when you move to chapter 2, we see that he becomes a little lower, right? He becomes a little lower than the angels for a little while as he took on his humanity and endured the sufferings of this life. Then he was raised from the dead and exalted to the Father's right hand. And now he's sitting there waiting until the Father subdues all of his enemies and he takes control of the earth. Here's the thing that struck me. His greatness, you might say, in chapter 1 is his in a kind of solo way. When you look at chapter 2, his greatness is reflected in his people. Angels serve them. Well, that's actually the end of chapter 1, but the last verse of chapter 1, verse 14. Angels serve the saints. Verses 5 through 9, the angels don't rule. The sons do because they've been restored. And Abraham's blessings are poured out on the seed of Abraham. God is concerned about them, not angels. Here's the way I see it. When our Lord Jesus humbled himself and came down to the earth and took on human flesh. He embraced all believers to himself so that when he is elevated to the right hand of the Father, we are elevated with him. Therefore, we see the superiority of the Son through his work in the saints. The Son is greater than the angels, but he is greater than the angels in what it does for people. For those who trust. So the angels serve the saints. The angels don't rule the, the age to come, the world to come. The sons do. The angels aren't the recipients of God's doting care, if you want to say that, his, his blessings, but rather the seed of Abraham. So that our Lord Jesus Christ, in his humiliation, has embraced those who are in him. He has embraced those and he has elevated them and the greatness of the Son is seen in part in the saints. Does that make sense? So think about who we are. It says that we have been restored because of the incarnation. We have been restored to a glory that we lost. To where we will rule in the, in the world to come. We will reign with Him. It says that we have been now embraced into a family, a fellowship. Now that's played out in corporate terms in Ephesians chapter 2. You've got the individual dimension of salvation in 1 through 10, but all of a sudden it says, you who are distant and far away, and separated from the covenant, and so on, and the promises of God. Now we have been brought near, but we have been brought near in a collective and corporate way. So that we are never alone. We are never alone. And the corporate dimensions of of our faith are going to be played out in the rest of Hebrews. You cannot be a solo Christian. Or I should say this, solo Christians are the ones who are in danger of drifting away. 
We are a part of a body, and, and that is there. We have now, because of the ministry of Christ, we now see Satan as the defeated enemy. We need not fear death. That's why Paul can say, I'm in a quandary. I don't know whether I want to die or live. Because I know if I die, I'm going to be with him. The, 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 the last great tool of Satan was the fear of death. The last great enemy. And when our Lord took on human flesh, he defeated the devil and he took away the fear of death. That ought to give us a whole new lease on life. It's made us a part of the seed of Abraham, the object of God's affection and attention. And now because of the incarnation, we not only have the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ in his propitiation for sin, we have one who is infinitely able to help, who has experienced our difficulties to an infinite degree, and he is there now to help us. That is what we are. That is what we have if we are in Jesus Christ. Now, I have to say this. In the context of what he's been saying in 2, 1 through 4, it seems to me that we, we've, to the degree that we drift from him, we drift from this all these assets, all these benefits, to the degree that we drift from him, we drift from the benefit of all of this relationship. did not say we lose our salvation. We drift from the benefits of it. And so looking at chapter 2, we would say, do I really want to lose that? If this is what the incarnation of Christ has done, if this is what the ministry of our Lord Jesus, the one who was infinitely great, now humbled himself to an infinite degree and he has exalted me with him, why would you leave? Why would you leave that? And the third thing I would say is this. There may be someone, as I think the author to the Hebrews will take note of in the future, there may be somebody in the assembly, the congregation, of believers who's never embraced it in the first place. And I would say to you, if you reject Jesus, you reject this. You reject this. All of this is what comes with him and is in the blessing of salvation for those who have trusted in him. There's nothing better than that, right? So it's who we are, who we are, and what we have that will change the way, I think, that we be behave. Father, thank you for this great text. Help us as we continue on. These are not easy things to deal with. But what a marvelous thing the Lord Jesus has done for us. How we can never fathom how in all of his greatness he would step aside and take on human flesh. And in the process of doing that, he has done so much for us. I pray that no one here would be outside of those who have trusted in him and that we would not drift from him and from what he has done. Father, I thank you also for the, the meal that has been prepared and we, I, I pray that you would have your hand of blessing upon all who participate in it. Help us to experience the reality of being a family as we share food together. And may we exalt the Lord Jesus, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.